Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is created, the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is the Ash London podcast. I am, you guessed it, Ash London. Reformed radio host, new mum and human being on a quest to live my best life when it feels like the world around me is imploding. Sound familiar? Every Tuesday we do a bit of mum chat. Every Thursday I do my favourite thing on the planet and I interview a guest. From celebrities who have entertained us over the craziness of the last two years to everyday people with inspiring stories. This is the Ash London Podcast. Hello, my darlings. Happy, well, it's supposed to be Thursday, but it's Saturday. I'll explain in a second why this podcast is late this week. But first, I wanted to say big love to the shameless girls for their shout out on their potty this week. Um, Of course, they have... I'm going to say the most popular podcast in the country. And there's nothing better than women making space to promote and encourage other women, which is what they did for me this week. So hello to any new listeners that have found us. Thanks to Zara and Michelle. Love you guys. I am coming to you from the lovely Adelaide Hills this week. We've been visiting Adrian's family and friends for what I'm calling the Buddy Ticket Tape Parade. Um, I love it up here. He's been an absolute champion chops. But given that we've been away and I'm working on a tiny little laptop and my software kept crashing, the podcast is a little delayed. So thanks for sticking with me. Um, Shall we just get into it? I think we should because today's a good one. Well, they're always good ones, but this is an extra special one for me because today's guest is one of my really good friends, Dimity Paul. Now, I don't want to give away too much of her story because I want to let her tell it. But for reasons you're about to discover, over the last couple of years, she's shown what it really looks like to have grace, hope and grit in the face of a diagnosis that so many women fear most. Despite the intro, this is actually quite an uplifting episode, so strap in. Well, I suppose this is the first, in fact, I'm going to say this is, after 30 episodes, the guest that I have known the longest which is terrifying because I'm going to say, and Dimity will correct me, like at this point, 19 years, Dimity Paul, welcome to the podcast, matey of 19 years. Hello, Ash. How are you? Great. Do you feel yeah. old enough to know anyone for 20 years? Like to me, I'm not old enough for that to be a reality. Well, I can only say that I've had a best friend since I was four days old because our mums were pregnant together. So I do have one I can always say is as old as me, but that's different because we were, you know, obviously babies. Yeah, but still, great story. Yeah, still. Anyone who has friends from school and are adults, I think it's a really good sign of the kind of friendships. It's true. And our friendship circle, I think more than most, like, we are we're still all friends and you yeah, more so, so because you're this kind of like there's like the, the wider group and then the smaller group and you are like very close with everyone in the wider group 
Yeah, I have. I Yeah, I was having a conversation with some people at work the other day and they said, oh, yeah, I have about three friends. And I'm like, well, I have about 20 best friends. You do. Let's make it started and you on. remember anniversaries and birthdays and you're all like, <laughs> I'm shit. I'm the worst. I'm getting better in my old age, but we can all admit I'm the useless one who's like, I don't remember no, many things. It's not useless. It's just we all have different roles to play in our relationships and I think I'm – just clearly very needy, so you need lots of friends. <laughs> but you host all the parties at your apartment. I do like lots of parties. Yeah. Not that we've had any for a long no, time, but, haven't. you know, they were good when they lasted. So I guess I think um, high school is a great place to start for everything that we're going to talk about today because, um, as de- and this is going to sound quite depressing, but I don't mean it in a depressing way, but cancer, the C word, yeah. even when we were in high school, was always a theme in your life, unfortunately. Yes. Does that mean, would, that, would you say that that is correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a theme in my life in some ways from when I was in grade two. So, yeah, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer when uh, she was in her early 40s. Um, Which is us in I a was, couple of years. Don't. So we can talk about how long we've been friends, but there's only <laughs> so far you can go, mate. <laughs> pushing the friendship but yes sure um so yeah so mum was in her early 40s um I was in early primary school and she found a lump and it was breast cancer um and then had treatment she was very unwell then it came back again when I was in grade four um and at that point they thought it was secondaries and you know I, I not everyone's as cancer literate perhaps as mm, I don't know I what that means don't wish it upon anybody um, but if it's secondaries, they kind of think that that's more of a, you know, end of life care, trying to extend life situation. And when I was in grade four, we just kind of thought that mum didn't have long to live. And, wow. you know, the house was remortgaged. We went on this family trip to Europe because mum had never done this family trip. We're like, you know, going around in a camper van. It was all very. Vain you know, last hurrah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, mum was having a a bit of a you know a bit of a time of it but you know wanted to live as much as she could and then lucky for us she never died not great for the mortgage I don't think (laughs) (laughs) but um mum survived and at that point in time they don't know if it was misdiagnosis or you know there just wasn't as much information about cancer as there is now particularly breast cancer in the 90s and, and things have improved so much and then um she got breast cancer again when I was in year nine, which is the year you came to school mm. and was when we met. So, which is probably why, you know, it, it yeah. was a pretty big memory for you. So, um, but very different experiences for me as a kid of someone who was sick being really little. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, as a kid, you know, kids are just focused in their own little worlds. But by the time I think you're a teenager, you've got a little bit more conceptualization of what's going on and if there's something bad that's happening to your parents. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I experienced that a little bit more than I did perhaps. Yeah, you feel less invincible when you're a bit older and you have known people who's lost parents or whatever becomes something that's a reality. Knowing that she'd beat it the, the second time when you thought it was done skis, did yeah. you approach that with kind of more hope of like, well, this is just something else, but she's going to beat it? Or was part of you thinking, what's my life going to look like if and when I lose my mum? Um, it's really weird because both my parents were sick a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> so 
remember coming home from school one day when I was in year nine and dad had had a heart attack. Mum was back in hospital and I had a voicemail. Remember the machines yeah. on the home um, answering machine from my sister going, hi, Tim, just letting you know your dad's in hospital, mum's in hospital too. Um, if you need anything, call me. <laughs> you know, oh, so, gosh. But it was, I mean, not not to like dramatise it, but I didn't really see it as anything that was out of the ordinary because when yeah. you're a kid, everything that happens is normal yeah. because that's just your life. So um, was I scared? Probably not because my parents just never died when they yeah. were sick. So I just presumed they'll always going to be okay, which, you know, is you know, it doesn't always, isn't always the case, but I think that's where I was as a teenager. And, um, uh, but, but for mum, I think the third lot was just, it was hard. And I think for her, um, you know, and obviously I can't speak for her experience, but she certainly said that that lot of chemo was probably the hardest. And I think when I was younger for her, she was just really trying to hold on to be there as I grew up. She wanted to see me go into high school. She wanted me to, you know, go through puberty and do all those things that a parent wants to do. Um, And, you know, of course, at that point, she wanted to see me graduate. There's always something Mm. more I think you want as a parent to see. But, gosh, I think it was harder for her. I I really think it was. Well, she did make it. She did. She's She's still still with us. She's probably giving me a call now saying I haven't been in touch for a few days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have so much in common. Will she listen to this podcast, do you think? Is she that kind of mum? Because my mum listens to everything I do. Yeah, she will. Um, she'll probably share it with her friends and then send me some really great gifts. Loves a gift. Oh, I think you meant gifts, like presents. I was like, come on, but she gifts. Oh, no, that's me. That's my love language. No, yeah, um, it's gifts. She's really she's really nailing them at the moment. I'm very impressed. Good on you, Dal. Now, mm. at what point in your life, was there the talk that maybe this is something that could be genetic? When did that start? When was that part of your peripheral? There might actually be something that's happening inside me. Yeah. Okay. So this was, so when this was all going on with mom, it was pre um, sort of gene mutation knowledge. Yeah. So she was part of one of the initial studies that um, did some testing for people because she That's had... a classic this- of your family, by the way, to be part of an early study. Like I said, it's just <laughs> so on brand for you guys. Well, it's because we like healthcare improvements. <laughs> so into that. So as I said, everyone was sick when I was growing up. Um, so uh, so she, she was a part of that and she got tested for a gene mutation. She found out she had the gene mutation. And now I'm trying to remember when this all happened, but I'm going to guess it was when I was around 20. Mm. Um, she was always very, you know, both my parents were very open with their health issues. Um, and when she found out she had this mutation, uh, then came the information that, well, your children can de- get tested. So I'm one of six. Dad has two kids um, from a previous marriage. Mum has three from a previous marriage and then they have me. So for her, there was four children that could have been affected. So one boy and three girls. And um, the kind of gene mutation that we're talking about is called the BRCA gene or the B-R-A-B-R-C-A gene. I should know that. Um, (laughs) I got it. Oh, I just ruined the story. Damn it. Um, This is why you do radio. Um, I don't. Um, But um, so I found out at about... 21 that I could go and get tested so I did because I'm a control freak and I like to know what's going on in my life but not um, everyone would do that like not yeah. everyone would say I could find out whether there's a and correct me if I'm wrong but oh. it, it, this gene doesn't mean you're going to get cancer it means you've got a very high likelihood of probably developing it right like what is the kind of 
Oh, look, you know, an 80% chance of getting okay. breast cancer in your lifetime and a 60% chance of ovarian. So, you know, it's, it's pretty high. And of the four <laughs> siblings, how many got it? Or did you all get it? That's me. So from what I understand, they've all been tested. Um, and so, and it is an issue for men as well. And I think it's really important when we're talking about the BRCA gene to mm. also include men, because obviously men can have children and they can also pass it on. But also there's an increased risk of um, prostate cancer and male breast cancer, which yeah. is also a thing. So, so all four it, of you got tested, but you were the only one. Oh, okay. I'm the only one. Did you which, all get tested at the same time or was, was no, there? No, like- and so this is the thing about this sort of thing is that everyone came to it in their own time, yeah. in their own way. And I think that's really important. Um, but I also, then there's the other part of me that, you know, when we get further down, I'm very glad that I knew. And I think yeah. there's a lot of power in in having information about your healthcare in the, in the same way as you know, if you're pregnant, knowing the things to look out for and knowing the milestones, because it gives you the information to be able to share with medical yeah. professionals to make sure you're okay yeah. um, or your baby's okay. So I think having information about your healthcare, whilst it can be scary, actually is the thing that can save your life. And do you have, was there, I mean, I hear you get like counselling or you, like, did I make that up that you have to discuss it with someone before you do it? Yeah, so I went and spoke to the genetic counsellor and they sort of, you know, talked about all the the different, I mean, it's it's different to sitting there kind of like psych counselling where you're, you know, talking about, you know, your yeah, feelings and, and your trauma. And yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. It's very different to that. It, it's it sort of information about genetics. Uh, so I'm 21, I'm speaking to this genetic counsellor, but I still decide to go ahead, even mm-hmm. though there's, there's a lot of impacts um, to that. So I get tested, I go in and I find out that I've got the BRCA gene. Um, and really weirdly, and I know I said I, at that point, I didn't know that my other siblings didn't have it because they all got tested at different times. But at that point, it was this weird feeling. And I know this sounds strange of just going, well, I know this and I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And actually quite weirdly, I was really pleased. <laughs> this sounds really weird that I had it and not my sister who already had three kids because wow. No, it's it's just that thing of she already had three kids, two girls and a boy. Um, they were just so little and perfect and beautiful. And mm. at that point in time, I'm like, well, I'm young, you know, I've I've got options. So it's just this weird thing about knowledge that I think can be quite powerful. And I, I just felt quite lucky that in that situation, it was me, not her. Does that make sense? I think that makes perfect sense when it comes to little kids because yeah. really they've dodged a bullet. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, I know I'm not a mum, but like, I'm a tiger auntie. And because yeah. you were <laughs> an auntie it. before any of us. Yeah. Yeah. Got older so, siblings. Yeah. So just the idea of it affecting them, it was, it was a relief, weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, also, is there a sense of relief that like, there's no more wondering? It's like, okay, I've got it. Now I can put a plan into action and take control. Yeah, a little bit, except for some of the things that that gave you to get into control were just wild at 21 but like what uh well I remember speaking to one of the oncologists and you know being told about the risk and and the sorts of surgeries you could have for prevention and you know then the chat about well you know would you maybe would you like to have children I'm like yeah sure one day well maybe you should think about having them soon I was like and when you're 21 I'm at uni, I live with my parents, I have a part-time job at the pool. (laughs) And also we were like, we raised in church, should we say late bloomers, like we had some living to do. (laughs) 
of like, you know, surely you should have, you know, probably have a, you know, a husband at that point, I was very like, kind of, I need to get married. And, yeah. but that's, you know, at that point I wasn't there. So yeah, of course. it just, um, it just sent wild. And so I guess the information at that point in time was sort of really well, then there's nothing we can do for you at 27. We'll start scanning you and we recommend in your thirties. So in my head, thirties equaled 35. They yeah, may have said something else, but in my head it was 35. <laughs> you decided. 30s was also so old, right? Like it was 15 years away. Gosh, I'm so far away. And who cares about my 30s? And it will be so old and useless that I won't need any of I won't need boobs. Yeah, exactly. And I'll be like, you know, have 100 children by then. So we'll be fine. (laughs) So I I really just kind of parked it and I did the thing. So I finished uni. I went and did um, worked and did some travel overseas, came back, did some more study. um, And you know, it wasn't really until I was 31, which, you know, these days, well, 30, 31 mm. is pretty normal time to. Yeah, you start thinking, okay. Yeah. But, um, I was like, okay, yeah, this is great. Um, and I'd started my scans at 27 and I'd had a negative scan and negative scan. I'm like, great. And how long do you wait between getting in the MRI and then getting the result? Yeah, it would, it would take a little while. So you'd have this week where you kind of oh. went. But I kind of, you know, again, in my head, I kind of, everyone's always fine. Everyone's yeah. always fine. I'd be fine. Um, I just guess also, like, I always look on the bright side. And yeah, and you <laughs> were always fine. You get a good scan, so you expect fine. another good scan. Yeah. So at 30, I had an irregular one, and I had a thing come up called a PASH, which I can't remember what that is shortened for, but it was an irregularity that was non-cancerous. Um, and so they put a copper clip. So I had a biopsy, and they put something in place so they could monitor that essentially Mm -hmm. um but that was all fine and I did have a conversation I remember at that appointment with a plus uh, with a breast surgeon about where I was at with thinking about having a mastectomy Mm. because that Um, is one option having a mastectomy mastectomy before you get the cancer absolutely and that was my plan right because again I was going to control this yeah and so but I was like oh I'm 30 I want to have kids still, you know, what's the window? And they're like, well, you know, you know, it's something to really consider. I'm like, I'll do it when I'm 35. Next year, go around, have a test, have a um, irregularity. Um, And so then they tried, they they wanted to do a biopsy on my 31st birthday. I was like, not my birthday kids. So I pushed it back. So that was fine. I, you know, had my biopsy, second biopsy again, you know, uncomfortable, not pleasant, but you get through it. Um, and then I rock up to the hospital oh, two week, you know, week, two weeks after that and you're in the waiting room and I'm like, oh, you know, just waiting to get to work. Oh, they're taking a while. Someone comes up and they go, oh, do you have anyone with you? Oh, I'm no. Like, no. Do you have anyone with you is never yeah. good, is that, Dim? Me? Didn't click. I'm like, hi, no, just me. <laughs> I didn't, I go. And then they have my... Um, nurse from the um, the familiar cancer centre at Peter Mac, so from the genetic testing people who I'd known since I was 21. Yeah. So she was in the room and the, there was a breast surgeon um, and then some other nurse came in. And do you know at this point, are you thinking, ah, oh, shit? No. Oh, you know, I'm like, oh, this is nice. This is <laughs> great come service. And support me on my journey. How good is the public health system in Victoria? <laughs> this is great. Peter Mac's amazing, um, which it is. But, you know, and then the breast surgeon says, you have cancer. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> what? Hang on, I haven't, I had a plan. Yeah. Um, and so essentially, here I am thinking, I'll have this scan, I'll look to get pregnant, essentially. Um, and 
boom, my genes explode. Mm. And I have a less than a centimeter grade three cancer in very similar spot to the patch that hadn't been there a year before. So in less than a year, it was mm. tiny. And, um, and then through further testing, um, I had a sentinel node biopsy and I had a lumpectomy. And in the sentinel node biopsy, which is where they take some of your lymph nodes mm-hmm. um, and they inject a sort of a dye. So once upon a time, they'd take all your nodes. But this is, again, you know, all the research, all the all the um, the trials that I always talk about that are really important got to the stage where they just didn't clear lymph nodes. So I used this test to work out which nodes might be hot to work right. out if the cancer may have spread and they could target them. And then in that, it came up that the cancer had spread to my nodes when the cancer spreads out of the site, that means you need to have chemo. Mm-hmm. So I was also hoping I wouldn't have to have chemo because I'm like, it's little, it'll be fine. They'll cut it out. It'll be fine. Yeah. But, you know, um, unfortunately I had to have chemo. Okay. So you're still very young and you think that your plan is have kids, then you're just going to sort it all out. The, plan, all the out. plan goes out the window straight yeah. away. How yeah. much of you is thinking, but I want kids? How much of you is thinking, but I want to live? Yeah. Does there have to be a trade-off? It does, does, if you do the fertility thing, does that mean you have to delay the life-saving stuff? Does there have to be a balance? So it's a really, really good question, Ash. And I think this is something, again, I go back to research trials, really good medical interventions that have changed this. Um, so now there are options for, for, so it depends on your cancer um, as well so this is not for everyone but for me I had the, I had a window where I could do a round of IVF to collect some eggs um, and that is something that I think I was very lucky to get the information in a really timely way the hospital at the same time as organizing my surgeries and that lumpectomy I was telling you about and the sentinel node biopsy were busy talking to the women's hospital across the road um, about getting me in to see a fertility specialist. So they're just organising all of this. So this is the health system just humming along and getting it all done. So in the week of, you know, tests, appointments, more scans, I also, you know, go across to the women's one day and, you know, you're having a chat next minute, you're having having an internal ultrasound, which a lot of women on here. Not fun. That when you're not expecting to go in for one of those, yeah. that, that, that's, a, that's a whole new Can world. I just add as a side note, once I thought my IUD had displaced, so I went to this random expensive private gynecologist and I go in and it was like $500 for an appointment, but I was going to overseas the next day. So I was like, I need it. I'm not going to relax. And I go into this dimly lit room and the, the most attractive gynecologist of all time walks in oh, and I'm unfair. like, he's so hot. And then he dims the lights and this nurse came and put like a sheet over my like legs and then he gets the thing out and he puts the condom thing on it, lubes it up. Dimity, I swear to God, he just put his hand under the blanket without looking and got my vagina in the first go. And I was like, what the hell? How did you do that? Like I was too impressed to even be uncomfortable. He didn't look. He just looked at the ultrasound screen and then with his right hand – didn't have to poke around. I was like, is that is that like magnetized? What the? Anyway, that's not relevant to what we're talking about. I was going to say that's that, why he was $500 an hour. Right? That they should say though. We're charging yeah. you $500, but he'll get it in one without looking. And he's very good looking. Get what you pay for. Exactly. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, so, so that all happened. So it was all quite a whirlwind. So I was, you know, absolutely lucky enough to get the information. Now, what I understand, and, you know, I've obviously done a lot of research and um, have tried to do as much advocacy in this area as possible, is that this isn't something that's always offered to people everywhere. So I think there's a bit of a gap between regional and city. I was super lucky and super privileged to live in a capital city with a world-class cancer hospital. Um, I would say the best in Australia because, you know, here I am. Um, uh, So, you know, I was really lucky to have that with a really integrated health system that made it easy and accessible. And I think for a lot of people, when they're getting this kind of news, the idea of, you know, you're just dealing with, as you said, that life and death issue, dealing with fertility, um, you know, if you're single or perhaps if you already have endo or other, you know, health issues thrown in, Mm. it would just be so much. And so... I really feel very privileged that I've had that access, but I'd love to see a world where that wasn't a privilege due to living in a capital city or being, you know, at an amazing hospital with incredible access to other hospitals. So I think that's a really important thing to note. Um, Okay. And how long did that take between the diagnosis, the fertility, and then the chemo? What was that timeline, if you can remember? Yeah, so I think it was diagnosis um, and then I had this trip planned actually to go see our friend Sarah in Hong Kong to meet yeah. her baby. Um, and so I, I mentioned that they said, go do your trip um, and see your friend and then you just take you a few days. It was like three days or four yeah. days um, and came and did back. you tell Sarah or did, like, did she know that you'd had the news at that point? Well, I told Sarah, but I think I was still processing it. And I was like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I remember when you told me and you were like, it's just a bit of cancer. Like you were so blase about it that in my mind I was like, oh, well, she's going to be fine, obviously. Like she was prepared. She's ready. She's got this. She's not worried. So I'm not worried. Well, I think, I mean, look, there there were stages of going through acceptance, right? Um, So, you know, I did that for a few days. Then I, I came back and then it was a whirlwind of appointments over a week from I think there, there were other scans, like there were bone scans and there were um, other ultrasounds and, and um, other things for targeting uh, the, the site. And there was a psychiatrist appointment because at one point I was like, take my breasts off now. I want them gone immediately. <laughs> so like talking me down from that because it was a bit late, sweetheart. But also there was a whole lot of other things that were coming. So, you no, know, they, they really throw mm. all of the support at you. And then, you know, then there was the fertility appointment. So it was, it was madness. Um, and then I think it was on the Thursday I had the operation. Um, and then... Oh, the Friday I was supposed to be going to this uh, fundraiser for my German scholarship organisation and I thought I could go. Like I was genuinely believe I could go. I obviously couldn't go. I just had surgery. And then there was a wedding on the Saturday and I and I went to the wedding with, with my hospital compression stocks nice. underneath some very thick tights. Um, but I just went to the day bit and I didn't go to the night. And then, because, again, this is me dealing with it, um, I flew up to Canberra to go to work because I was working for a politician at the time. Then I flew up to Canberra and worked a sitting week. Yeah. 
um, still wearing my compression stockings um, and came back and then waited for the, the results to find out if I need chemo, which I did need chemo. Um, and then it was sort of, you know, a week or two after that. And then I started chemo. But um, even chemo though, you didn't take time off work. Yeah, but I think it was my way of coping, Ash. Yeah. I think um, for me, it was about keeping busy. And I think it was about being around people. Like mm. for me, as you know, me and all my mates, but I just think that people are strength for me. Mm. And there's, you know, some people who are introverted, there is nothing more tiring than lots of people. For me, people give me energy yeah. and, and sustain me. So I think while perhaps, you know, I probably should have taken a bit more time off, I think in some ways it was also about making sure I was nourishing myself with the things that I need and keeping some things normal. Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, I'm saying, you know, I was a control freak. I think I'd left from being the control freak at 21 who wanted to control everything and do everything and, and try to be the master of my own life. Whereas by this point in my early 30s, I knew I wasn't the master of my own life, but I knew I could focus on the things that I could control. Yeah. And so the things that I could control was how I reacted and how I set up my life around treatments. So things that I could control, for instance, was I did a thing called scalp cooling, which is it basically freezes your head. It's like a helmet that goes on your head um, and it basically makes all your um, hair follicles close up so the chemo doesn't go into it. So I didn't lose all my hair straight away. I did lose quite a lot of my hair, as you know, when I went through my mullet phase and my head I loved the mullet phase. Yeah. Because that scalp thing was very attractive. Thank you. The photos of you wearing that thing with your puffy chemo face. I mean, 10 out of 10. I know. And it was incredibly painful and it made chemo longer. But, you know, there's nothing like vanity to keep you motivated. It's not vanity. I get it. (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, I'm a weakling, so I'm not sure I could have handled the pain of it because I remember you telling me the worst part of chemo was the actual pain of having that thing on your head. It was that like, point, yeah. But, but I think, again, it was about what I could control. And in yeah. that sense, I'm sure everyone knew I was sick. I mean, I was walking around with a puffy chemo face <laughs> and a headscarf sort of tied in a bow <laughs> trying to cover my bald spot and working reduced hours. So, you know, I'm pretty, but for me, it was a sense of, I'm keeping this for myself. And at that point I had shared with a small group of friends. Mm. I hadn't shared with the world like I do now. Um, but I, it was just a sense of control and it, it was just one of the things I could choose to do in the same way yeah. that um, having an amazingly supporting workplace meant that I could still go to work, even if, you know, I was, um, so parliamentary sitting days are pretty crazy. So as a staffer, I'd, you know, once upon a time, you'd get in at seven and you'd often work till sort of nine, 10 o'clock at night. Um, but I was getting in at the late time of, you know, 10 a.m. and having a nap during question time <laughs> and then leaving at 8 p.m., which mm. is still is a full day, but, um, you know, well, apart from the nap. Yeah. But um, 10 hours but, in an office. No one else does that that I know. So, I mean, I was at your last you know, chemo appointment and you still had hair and you did your scalp calling. I don't have much, but yes. <laughs> so tell, tell everyone listening, as that kind of phase of the cancer, the journey comes to an end, what was the outcome after that as far as your boobs, as far as the cancer, the diagnosis, all that? Yeah, so after that um, I was then 
going to have a mastectomy and I had this plan that I was getting through chemo and I was going to have a holiday I just wanted to go to a beach mm. or a pool um because you're not really supposed to swim in water while you're having chemo and the water for me is just a healing yeah. healing place you've always been a swimmer and water polo yeah. and a beacher and yeah yeah so oh, it's just getting out into nature but I got a call I think it was 10 days after I finished chemo and they said we're pop, sl- slotting you in for a um mastectomy next week and I was like oh gosh <laughs> what <laughs> It never ends. And so then I went in for my mastectomy. I was in hospital, I think it was a week or 10 days. I was in there for a while. Um, and where's your head at? I mean, it's a, it's a very big question that's hard to kind of answer quickly in a podcast. Yeah. But, and I guess you'd had a lot of time to get your head around the idea. But I think it's not until you're actually faced with the prospect of really losing your breasts that you can ever yeah. really think about how important your boobs are as a woman like I can't it's it's such a um I, I can't imagine it now because you know like feeding a human with them I'm feeding you they are so important <laughs> yeah and there's no there's you know no reasoning my life I'd ever have to lose my boob it's not something you think about but when you're actually yeah. faced with that reality and it's not a vanity thing it's just a oh, it's boobs. vanity thing and also that's allowed I think of course but it's not I just think- vanity no, no, no. So there, there's, there were a couple of things. I mean, for me at that point, <laughs> I was like, get these things off me. So yeah, I think yeah. I, I think it was a lot easier to make the decision to have a mastectomy on the basis of very, very strong medical evidence that it was a good <laughs> idea. Um, but also having gone through the cancer, it just, it made sense. It's, yeah. it, it absolutely was just all I wanted to do. You know, I said, I got diagnosed. I'm like, take them off now. Yeah. But prior to that, before I was sick, and I, you know, I look at the women who have their preventative mastectomies, which is what my plan was, but I wanted to have my kids first. Yeah. Um, I think that's incredible, right? Mm. Because you're doing it preventatively. Like I had to get a kick up the behind to do it. Like yeah. these are people who are um, really taking control of their healthcare in a super, super brave way. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not brave to have a mastectomy after having cancer. It's still hard, but <laughs> yeah. I still think that the motivating um drivers are a bit stronger yeah um, so there was that you know I, I was ready um I think you know my mother had had a mastectomy so um she had she didn't have a reconstruction though and, and I chose to have a reconstruction and you know I again so lucky to be at Peter Mac I had the head of plastic surgery who I happened to you get along with you know one of the most senior breast surgeons so the breast surgeon removes the tissue the plastic surgeon kind of tries to oh. So there's a it's a it's a dual team of people working on you, and this was all done in the public health system, wasn't it? Yeah, amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, it, it was all yeah, all through Peter Mac, and there was a lumpectomy and the central node biopsy initially, and then there was the the mastectomy, and then there was the the swap for the spaces to implants, and then I've had uh, one more corrective surgery since then. So four surgeries, um, and yeah, it, it it's just incredible how I can do that mm. but then you have this weird thing where you you can recreate a breast but then a breast also has a purpose right yeah and so then there's a bit of a there's a bit of a sense of loss that sense of sadness that if you have a kid you can't breastfeed mm. um and they're, they're not the same they are different um so you know that there's a, a sense of loss I think you absolutely have to feel and I think from a body image perspective I think you really have to sort of note it and and really yeah. kind of lean into it. it 
so you can come out the other the other side and and really start to love your body and and work out actually this body survives something crazy and and boy I'm did so- you do that Dimity and boy did you do that it's one of the great <laughs> joys of my life watching the reemergence of Dimity Paul so timeline wise from diagnosis to finishing treat treatment or I don't know what the language is remission cancer free I know these things are two different things but what is what was the timeline from when it's diagnosis to like that phase of the cancer treatments done and you've got your new boobs yeah yeah so um well that I did a drug trial in there as well obviously so the oncologist that I had who amazingly was the oncologist I first met when I was 21 I don't think she was the one who told me to go have babies though because she's she wouldn't do that she's very cool um but she, so I'd known her for a very long time. Maybe I'd met her in my mid-20s. Um, she got me on this trial and it was called the Olympia trial and it was trialling a drug called Olaparib, which they'd used in late-stage breast cancers and ovarian cancers. And the idea was it was supposed to disrupt the way that the cells were reproducing and they gave it to you. So the, the chance of triple negative breast cancer coming back is highest in the first year to two years. Gotcha. So... Um, that the idea is, you know, once I had my chemo, once I'd had my mastectomy, I, so I got diagnosed in the September, um, chemo started in November, mastectomy February, and I started the drug trial in April and I did that for one year. Um, and that they have the results of that trial and the initial results are showing it's improving life expectancy to five years by over 40%, which is you know, my, my oncologist said, sometimes they do trials and we find out it increases life, you know, life expectancy by 2%. So this is, it is, it is huge. And being part of something like that um, is pretty massive. Um, and also, you know, maybe why, why I'm still here, who knows if I've got the drug, there are always um, placebo and, and drug situations where you get a bit of a, you don't know what you get. But um, so, yeah, so the next thing after that is it's about the five-year rule. So there's this general five-year rule about cancers and they measure most survivals on do you survive till five years Mm. because um, after five years, the the chance of recurrence is much lower. Mm. So my five-year anniversary is this September and um, I'd like to announce live here on radio, Ashley will be uh, the the main host and MC of the five-year cancer-free party. I will be there and you will look hot and we will all cheer you on. What a party that will be. I think it'll be pretty spectacular. And so I think, you know, I, I just feel so lucky, really. And I and I just think that the the idea of, you know, all of the treatments I've got, all of the science that has gone behind that, all of the people who've gone before, who've done all of the trials to target the chemotherapies, to target the surgeries, to have better at surgery outcomes, um, you know, you, you stand on the shoulders of giants in so many senses and and so many people have gone before and all of the health professionals as well the Mm. nurses the doctors the um the researchers um but also you educated yourself like you yeah very much took it on yourself to not be passive in your treatment and to you know to really demand like find out what your options were and really chase it down which is very commendable because i think a lot of people when faced with that, and we all cope in different ways, maybe wouldn't have had the headspace or the whatever to kind of, you know, to to demand anything. Mm. They'd just be more passive with it. I think I'm also very lucky that 
you know, I grew up in a household that was very health literate. Yeah. I don't think that's the case for everybody. Um, and so I think that probably became a bit of a superpower. So a lot of people go, oh, poor you, your parents were sick. Well, actually, in some ways, it it helped me be able to navigate the health system and advocate for myself in the health wow. system. So I think I think that is a bit of a privilege in some ways. Um, that is the, it's incredible to me that like literally <laughs> so many times in this conversation you've talked about how lucky, blessed or privileged you are. And like most people on paper would go, that girl ain't lucky. But, you know, you know, it's incredible. And I think that's really commendable. And perhaps I haven't given you enough credit over the years for that attitude, Dim. So I'll give it to you now on the podcast. Oh, thanks, mate. Oh, I think it's more that, you know, it goes down to what you can control. And like, you can't, you can't control sad things happening in life. You can't control illness. Um, and I think the only thing that you can control is the way you react. And, you know, the, there's, if there's one thing that cancer teaches you is that you have one life mm. and that in every day that you get, you really do have a bit of a choice on, on how you wake up. And I, I know there's lots of different complications. And there were days when I woke up when I was having chemo, where I just felt like death, mm. literally. And so that was, you know, there were hard days to be like, I'm so lucky and everything's going to be great. So obviously it's not every day, but I still, I, I still strongly believe that, you know, I, life is very precious. Um, and if, you know, I get this chance to keep living, I, I want to live it to the best of my ability and mm. do as much as I can for others whilst also getting enjoyment for myself. That's so beautiful, Dim. And I think that's the perfect note to end our chat on. And I don't know, I feel like I will certainly be approaching today with more of a sense of, of gratitude so thank you my love love it do it love you you. you're the best so there you have it i told you it was going to be an uplifting one um my friend dimity paul what a champion i guess if there's any takeaway or maybe there are two takeaways from today's episode the first being dimity's ability to accept what had happened to her and then spring into action um take responsibility for what happens to you even when it's not your fault and even when it's crappy the second takeaway is to advocate for your own health and get your boobs checked if you haven't what a great reminder for all of us thank you dim and thank you guys for listening um i love you heaps i hope that was a good one uh i'll be back on tuesday with new mum who dis featuring hilarious incredible author Ash Davenport, her book, Sad Mum Lady, is a must listen for all mums, especially new mums. Have a safe and wonderful weekend and I'll catch you next time. If you have any feedback, thoughts, suggestions, or just want to have a chat, you can hit me up anytime. Hello at ash.london. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 